I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you're new with us today, a very warm welcome to you. It is great to worship with you. You are joining us in the middle of a series in the book of Philippians. And as we round third base and head toward home, this morning we focus our attention on chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. And you know, sometimes you need to say it more than once to make sure that the message is received. Wives, can I get an amen? (laughs) We don't always get it the first time. Sometimes we need to be reminded. And you can say it more than once in the exact same way. That's called repetition. Or you can say it in a different way. And that's called restatement. I'm going to tell you what I've already told you, but I'm going to do it in a little bit of a different way with a little more punch this time to drive home the point. That is what Paul is doing in our text today. He's telling us what he's already told us earlier in the book. But it's so important... It's so encouraging, it's so vital for your life that he is going to tell us again in a little different way with a bit of a different punch this time. And so follow with me as we pick up in verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. This morning, I would like to begin with the end. The command to stand firm in the Lord. It's clear. It's direct. By the nature that we need to be told, it implies that there will be some who don't stand firm. I wonder if you've ever seen anyone walking on the beach or maybe playing in the shallow water and as they have their back turned to the ocean and toward the shore, a larger than average wave comes up and totally wipes them out. (laughs) They weren't standing firm. Standing firm has the idea 
that something is coming that will threaten you, that will destabilize you, that will put you off kilter, that will cause you to stumble, to trip, or maybe even to fall. The force of the wind, the power of the sea, or in the case of Christians, even worse, the cultural forces that are opposed to the gospel. And there is a proactive preparation that needs to take place so that when the force comes, you will not be knocked over. Paul has already told us about this once. He's restating it again. You might remember way back a number of weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. Why does he want them to stand firm? Well, the answer is obvious. Look at how he describes them. He calls them brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. I don't think there is any other place in the entire Bible where someone is referred to with such gushing affection. <laughs> it's as if Paul is saying, God's people, I love you because he loves you. Yes, God loves everyone, but he doesn't love everyone the same way. He loves his people even more. And therefore, I love you even more. I've seen how he's changed you. I've seen how he's healed you from brokenness. I've seen how you've humbled yourself to follow him as your king. I've seen how you've traded the things of lesser value in this life for the things of the greatest value of knowing Christ. I see how he has forgiven your sins. I love you. I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to be surprised. So stand firm. In the Lord. And from there, he gives them a number of ways to help them understand how to stand firm. The first way is seen in verse 17. We might just say it very simply imitate the right people. <laughs> that will help you to stand firm. Brothers, join in imitating me, he says. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, it might seem like a fairly brash thing for Paul to tell people to imitate him. Unless, of course, the alternative is absolutely detrimental to their soul. Paul's not being arrogant here. He's recognizing the practical reality of the situation Imitating the right type of people helps one to stand firm. <clears throat> and Paul isn't just telling them to imitate him alone. He points to others as well who walk according to the example. They reflect the faithfulness of Jesus. This isn't the first time he's brought this up either. 
Back in chapter two, he displayed that he, as well as Timothy, as well as Epaphroditus, are people who are worthy, (coughs) excuse me, to be imitated. himself is imitating Christ by not looking to his own interests, but the interests of others. Chapter 2, verse 4, he's being poured out like a drink offering on the altar of their faith. Chapter 2, verse 17. Timothy is one who genuinely cares for the well-being of others, but the interests of Christ, unlike anybody else, he says in chapter 2, verse 20. And Epaphroditus is the one who has proven faithful through the hardships of life, chapter 2, verse 29. These are great examples to imitate. And the fact that they were previously mentioned as examples at that time was not met with the expressed wish that you would imitate them. That was an implication. But here that wish is made clear. Look to people like this and copy their manner of life because they will help you to stand firm. You know, everyone learns through imitation to some degree or another. And that's not a bad thing. Children imitate their parents. <laughs> and if you don't know how your young children are imitating your mannerisms, just ask your friends. They will tell you how your toddlers act like you or speak like you or even have facial expressions like you. If you want your child to be good at soccer, they don't just play soccer, but they also watch it. They learn by imitating how to move their bodies with or without the ball, how to create things in real time, how to take different angles toward the goal. And the same could be said of any sport. The best athletes in a sport don't just play, they also watch because through imitation they learn. Their lives, the lives of these men, are worthy to imitate because they're men of the one goal. This was the goal that we talked about last week. Remember? Philippians chapter 3, Paul is giving the goal maybe of the whole book. He says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him to his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And then he says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing. I forget what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Knowing Christ is the chief goal. And their example points us toward that goal. And so the question, just very plainly, for you and for me is this. Who do you imitate? Who do you look up to? Everyone. Don't be so prideful to think that you don't imitate anybody. That you haven't modeled your life in some way after other people. Everyone looks toward other people in some way. 
Who is it for you? A parent? A professor? A business leader? A older godly husband or wife? A grandparent perhaps? Do they point you to the Lord? Do they help you see what the most valuable thing is and how to orient your days around that most valuable thing of knowing Christ? If not, then it might be time to look for someone else to imitate. Because Paul says, imitate the good guys. (laughs) They will help you stand firm. But not only imitate the good guys, he says, he says, reject or steer clear of the wrong type of people. And he actually calls them the enemies of the gospel. So look at it with me, verse 18. He says, for many, this is the importance of imitating them. Why is it so important to imitate the right type of people? Because many of whom I've often told you, verse 18, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Enemies of the cross, he says. These are people who identified themselves as Christians, but are so misrepresenting Christ that they're leading others into a life that is contrary to him while at the same time claiming allegiance to him. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing. And we need to pause right here for a minute and just recognize that Paul is making an evaluation. He's making a judgment And he's calling us in some ways to do the same. And this evaluation is not a soft one. To say someone is an enemy of the cross, regardless of what they say, is a serious evaluation. Now, this is important for us because we have this dynamic in our culture today, and maybe especially in our Christian culture, that that has both a positive desire and a negative result attached to it. And this is what it is. In the desire to honor the Lord's command of Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, (laughs) or remove the speck from your own eye before the plank from somebody else's eye, many Christians assume that we should not, that we should go through life and just take everyone at their word. Even if their life doesn't align with what they say. And at the same time, we see that Paul, in this chapter, is not taking these people at their word, but he's looking at their life, and he's saying, not only don't follow them, but they're the enemies of Jesus. (laughs) And so how do you reconcile those two? Don't judge lest you be judged, And make a judgment so you don't follow the wrong people. (laughs) There's a tension there. Well, your heart and your motive are certainly at the center of revolving the tension. Because without a doubt, 
Some people want to judge and look down on others, pointing out their flaws, their sins, their shortcomings, their history, so that they can look more righteous and garner more favor in the eyes of other people. This is the type of judgment that Jesus is warning against. But at the same time, we are indeed called to make an evaluation an evaluation of beliefs and the lives of others, especially those who claim Christ, to know if we should indeed follow them or if we should steer clear of them. This is the type of evaluation or judgment that Paul makes in this passage. And his evaluation that there are some who claim Christ and yet are enemies of the cross, and he gives four ways that you can know for sure. The first one, if you look at it, is he says that their end is their destruction. Just in case you thought he was soft-pedaling this thing. There's no subtlety here. There's no hemming and hawing. He says that his evaluation is not what is final, but God's evaluation of eternal judgment and subsequent damnation will be what is at stake. These are the highest stakes imaginable for those who deny the cross. Secondly, he says that their God is their bellies. The pleasure of the world have enraptured these enemies of the cross. The image is the image of consumption, right? The thing that they care the most about is what makes them happy or physically feel good or satisfied. It's not a reference just to food, though that's the sort of image but it's primarily a reference to the broad sense of sensuality that we have at our fingertips today. And that's important for us to remember, especially in this time and in this place in history. Every person on the planet has struggled with sensuality in some way, but our culture may be more than many. We live in probably the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, which means... We have options for sensuality all the time. The finest of drinks, the most luxurious of foods, be able to be procured very quickly. The opportunity for frequent physical sensuality and even sexual sensuality. And many of us have fallen into the trap at one time or another, or at the very least recognize the battle in our own hearts and our own souls We get most excited for our comfort. We live for the next physical pleasure. And in this sense, if we're not careful, we too could fall prey to having our God be our bellies. But Paul says that's a sign of someone who's an enemy of the cross. The third sign that he gives is he says that they glory in their shame. Things that should be shameful become a sign of pride for enemies of the cross. Hedonism is the glory of the pursuit of pleasure above all other things. And when we are so enraptured by the pursuit of pleasure, we find glory or we find value or we find worth in things that should be shameful because they constitute a rebellion against God. There are 
countless examples of this in our culture. Whether it is glorying in the number of sexual partners that a person has outside of the confines of marriage. That's glorying in shame, Paul writes. Whether it's glorying in the raging party that you had last weekend that resulted in all kinds of sin, that's glorying in shame. Whether it's glorying in different types of social agendas that stand contrary to the word of God but are placed on the banner above his word, that's glorying in shame. I think of one such example back in 2018, a so-called liberal Lutheran pastor and author named Nadia Bowles-Weber encouraged women to send in their purity rings to be melted down and recast into a golden statue of female genitalia in protest to evangelical purity culture. The sculpture was to be unveiled at the 2019 Makers Conference, she wrote. And the website stated that those who would send in their purity rings would receive a certificate of impurity as well as a shameless impurity ring. Now, in some evangelical circles, purity rings are known as promise rings or sometimes chastity rings were given to middle, age, middle school age girls or high school age girls as a symbol of a promise that they made to remain abstinent from sexual activity until they were married, to save themselves for their husbands. A sexual ethic that Bowles Weber was trying to undo as she openly embraced the use of pornography as long as it was responsibly sourced. Homosexuality and, of course, sex without, outside of marriage. All in the name of God and under the banner of a church as they openly rebelled against his word. They glory in their shame. It reminds you of the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. He writes, walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there are three things that Paul's identified so far. Here's the fourth of those who are enemies of the cross. He says, their minds are set on earthly things, not heavenly things. And that's a summary statement, really, of what's going on here. Despite what they say, their paradigm for life is based on earthly things. They live in sort of their pre-conversion state and continue to adopt the ethic therein. We could spend a lot of time considering what that paradigm of living for earthly things looks like. Just a couple of examples, of course. The earthly person views themselves and their family as the most valuable, 
and not the Lord Jesus himself as the most valuable. They often viewed the pursuit of comfort and pleasure as of the highest importance instead of faithfulness to the Lord as the highest importance. They view people as a means to a personal end. They often view themselves as the highest authority for what is right or wrong, good or bad, acceptable or unacceptable. They are the king of their own lives and with that comes a sense of self-determination. I am gonna determine the pathway of my life, not God. And for so many then today, the trap of pursuing earthly things is not just in these things, but for many in the West, it's also found in materialism, isn't it? Very plainly, what is the pursuit of earthly things? <laughs> the things of the earth that we want to keep for our pleasure. And I think of the illustration of the towns in India in early 2001 that were stricken by the plague of monkeys. The monkeys were so numerous that they would invade homes, they would bite people, they would make off with food supplies. And it was agreed that they would have to be caught and relocated. And so these people in the towns resorted to a very traditional method for catching the monkeys. They gathered their old milk bottles and they tied them to the ground and they placed something sweet inside the bottle, such as a hard candy. And when the monkey came along and saw the sweet inside the glass bottle, he would place his hand inside the bottle, but with the sweet enclosed in his fist, his fist was too big to pull his hand back out of the bottle. And so greedy were the monkeys that many of them would push and pull enclosed fist in an effort to get that sweet out of the bottle, but they would not let it go. Not even as their captors approached. And so the monkey was caught literally with his hand in the candy jar. <laughs> it's a picture, actually, of the struggle with materialism that many of us have we know Jesus' warning that materialism is destructive to our souls and to our world. We know that we will not ultimately find joy and lasting value in the treasures of the earth, and yet we find it so difficult to let go of the possessions that consume us as we possess them. So here's the point. When you abandon the lifestyle that Jesus calls you to, it shows that you've abandoned the belief that he's given you. When you go back to pre-Christian ways of living, it shows that you never actually adopted Christ as your savior. Their lifestyle revealed that their faith was not genuine. It didn't matter what they said. Their lifestyle showed what they truly believed. They weren't neutral. Paul called them enemies of the cross. So he says, stand firm by imitating the good guys. Stand firm by avoiding the bad guys. And stand firm by living as a citizen of heaven. Verses 20 and 21, and we'll move quickly, friends. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the second reminder of citizenship in the book. We've seen reminders of imitation. (laughs) We've seen reminders of worth and value. We've now seen a reminder of citizenship, and we will see a reminder of the resurrection. Back in chapter 127, let your life, live your, or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he writes, which as we explained back then, literally means let the manner of your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's an identity statement that I need to be reminded of all the time. And I know it's not just my shortcoming and problem. You are first and foremost not a citizen of your home country if you're a Christian. And for those of us who love our home country, that might make you bristle a little bit. But you are first and foremost not, for most of us, a citizen of the United States of America. You are first and foremost not a citizen of the great state of Ohio. You are first and foremost not a citizen of your family. As much as you love your lineage and your heritage, you are first and foremost, if you're a Christian, a citizen of heaven. This is not your home. And as much as you try to make it a comfortable home for you, you will never be truly comfortable here if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And your remembrance of that citizenship helps you to stand firm. So stand firm in the Lord, friends, by imitating the good guys. Stand firm by steering clear of the bad guys. Stand firm in the Lord by remembering your citizenship. And finally, stand firm in the Lord by looking toward the second coming. He says at the end of verse 21 that Jesus is coming back and he will transform your body with the same power that his resurrection occurred with. The glorious result of the gospel is seen here for you and for me. God not only offers you forgiveness and a new life in this life right now, when you put your faith in his son, if you want a new life, if you want to be changed, if you want to experience a deeper joy, a deeper fellowship with God, a lasting purpose, put your faith in Jesus. The invitation is before you today. But his work in you is not and will not be done until his son returns to complete what he started with you and in you as you enter into everlasting life with him. And at that time, your body will be glorified. Your body will be made perfect. So stand firm and look to the second coming. One day a traveler in Switzerland discovered a beautiful and secluded estate on the shores of a tranquil lake. And knocking at the garden gate, 
he was met by an aged caretaker who cordially asked him to come in. And the guardian seemed very glad to see another person and eagerly showed him around the garden. How long have you been here? The tourist asked. Oh, a very long time, the man replied. And how often has your master returned? Four times, the caretaker said. And when was the last time he was here? Many years ago. I am almost always alone and it is very seldom that even a stranger visits me. And yet you have the place in such a perfect order, he replied. And the traveler said, everything is flourishing as if you were expecting your master tomorrow. No, sir, exclaimed the gardener. I have fixed it as if he were coming today. Stand firm by looking to the second coming. Chuck and George worked in the machine shop together for over four years. George was a Christian who sang hymns while he worked, and many of them had to do with the second coming of Jesus. He would sing hymns like, In the Sweet By and By, and When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Hymns that very few of us probably recognize today. Late one Friday afternoon, about 10 minutes before quitting time, when everyone was weary, Chuck looked at George and he said, George, are you ready? He said, "Uh uh-huh. But he was still all dirty. He was obviously not ready. In fact, he looked like he was ready to keep on working. And so Chuck said, aren't you ready to go home? And he said, yeah, I'm ready. And Chuck said, Look at you. Man, you're not ready. you got to clean up. Let's go. No, he said. Let me show you something. So he unzipped his coveralls. And underneath were the neatest, cleanest clothes that you could imagine. He had them all ready. All he did when the whistle blew was to unzip and step out of the coverall, walk up, punched the clock, and he was gone. He said, you see, I stay ready to keep from getting ready. Just like I'm ready for Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready to go home? If you stay ready... You don't need to get ready. Stand firm in the Lord by imitating the good guys. Stand firm in the Lord by avoiding the bad guys. Stand firm in the Lord by remembering your citizenship. And stand firm in the Lord by looking toward his second coming. Sometimes we need to be told more than once. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us. We do not want to be overtaken by the forces at play that would seek 
to undo us. We don't want to stray. We don't want to wander. We don't want to be knocked over. Help us to stand firm. And give us great joy in knowing the power of Christ as we do. Amen.